good to, to be back with you all. Um, I'll be preaching until the baby comes, so uh, after that, uh, all bets are off. I've got a few guys uh, on call and some, some other guys that are slotted to preach. But we're, we're continuing in our series in Psalms. Um, so if you're, if you're new to the Bible, um, Psalms are in the Old Testament, and these are a collection. There's 150 of them gathered in our Bibles and they, are, they were originally written as songs. And so uh, I've titled the series Soundtrack of the Soul. Of the Soul. Uh, we've been looking at this. There's a section right in the middle of the Old Testament Psalms, which uh, today we're in 126. So if you're flipping there, you can go to Psalm 126. Um, but there's this section right in the middle of the Psalms that we're in that is called the Songs of Ascent. And these uh, were typically used by the ancient Israelites, the Jews, uh, as they were approaching Jerusalem. They would be traveling from out of town to Jerusalem for their annual religious festivals. And so they would have sung these songs out loud to each other uh, in Hebrew uh, while they were traveling. And this would have been really just the preparation uh, for worship. And um, we've been just walking through these. So today we're going to look at Psalm 126. Uh, Let's go ahead and uh, I'll read the text. If you don't have a Bible, the words uh, are projected for you there and you can follow along uh, with us on the screen. This is the word of the Lord from Psalm 126. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together this morning. Father, It's my prayer that the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight and that the meditations of every heart gathered here today would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Help us, O Lord, to hear your word rightly today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This uh, song is, is all about happiness and joy uh, and being restored to that when, when it's been lost for some season of life. And so as I began engaging this week in, in prep, preparation for that, I figured, um, you know, how, how can we be happy? Like, what, what is happiness for us? How do we find that? And of course, you know, any, any preacher worth his salt in weight is, um, uh, goes to Google. So I, I Googled, uh, how can I be happy? Uh, Google, how can I be happy? A number of results come up. First one, WebMD, right? So WebMD, it's going to tell me how to be happy. I'm figuring this is a safe, reliable source. And uh, WebMD has the seven, um, seven tips to being happy. Here they are really quickly uh, in, in no particular order. These are the things that you need to do to be happy. Don't worry. Choose happy. Uh, cultivate gratitude. Foster forgiveness counteract negative thoughts and feelings. Remember, money can't buy happiness. 
foster friendship, and engage in meaningful activities. Um, none, of, none of that's really terrible advice. Uh, I read it and I thought, okay, there's some, probably some helpful tips in there, things that we should probably put into practice in our lives. But, but the thing that resonated with me in comparing what the Bible has to say about happiness and really what the world and, and Google has to say about happiness is primarily the way that the world tells us to be happy is through activity. It's through something that we do in order to kind of work up or muster joy in our lives or happiness in our lives. And, you know, the Bible, it comes from an entirely different perspective. Um, but we think like WebMD. We think activity stirs happiness. So, like, I mean, for those of you that have been around the Bible a little bit, uh, when Jesus engaged with the, the young lawyer who asked him, what's the greatest commandment? Uh, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right, he tells him. And, and you and I, when we hear that, we say, okay, if I'm going to love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, how am I going to do that? It's through activity. It's through what I do. So I'm going to do things, spiritual activities primarily, in order to show God that I love him. And... Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing spiritual activities, but what if, here, here's a, a premise that I want us to look at the psalm through, what if loving God was actually done simply by delighting in him? Like, lo- showing your love for God was just done by just finding joy in his personhood, in who God is and the way God works, you know, the Bible speaks a lot about joy. Let me just give you kind of a smattering of some of the New Testament or some of the Bible verses that I came across. The Bible doesn't tell us to, to do something to earn joy. In fact, it, t- it just commands us to have joy. Philippians 4.4 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Psalms, there's a number of Psalms. Psalm 37 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 32 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And then Psalm 90 says, Satisfy us in the morning with our steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad in all our days. See, the Bible commands us to be joyful, commands us to be happy. Um. And the rub, the, the tension is that sounds really good on paper, but it's not always our experience, right? We're not always inherently a happy and joyful people. This song is all about restoring lost joy. It's all about discovering happiness that has fleed away from your life, um, so the question that I want to ask you today is, do you, do you want joy that is real and lasting? I'm not talking about like, you know, flickering happiness that comes with certain highs and lows of your life or, you know, you know joy that just kind of ebbs and flows when things are good and or bad. I'm talking about real, lasting, enduring joy that can weather storms of life that can endure through the hardest of times, that kind of joy. If you want that kind of joy, you need this song right here, Psalm 126. See, the centerpiece of this psalm is in verse 3, 
And it's just a really subtle thing. It almost, it's almost anticlimactic. If you look at the end of verse 3, that's the hinge. We are glad. It's actually the only present tense in the, in the whole song. So the hinge is, right now, in our current circumstances, we are happy. We are glad. It just seems so simple in our English, but it's really the hinge that's before it, that the, the, the previous stuff, which deals everything in the past. So we are glad now because of the past, what God has done in the past, and then it transitions in verses 4 to 6 to the future, the promises of what God will do in the future. And so if you want happiness, gladness, joy, that lasts and endures starting right now, you need to build on both the past and borrow from the future. That's what the text is saying. So here's here's the statement I'm going to try to prove and show from the text. I want you to see that joy that is built on the past and borrows from the future is the only joy that will satisfy you right now. So if we are looking for present day Right now, gladness in the Lord, you need to build on your past and borrow from your future. So let's use those kind of as our two talking points this morning. Let's look firstly at building joy on the past in uh, verses 1 through 3. This song is all about exiles returning from captivation outside of Jerusalem. So I've mentioned this, if you've been here in this series, that that this has a lot to do with the Israelites who were exiled out of Jerusalem, scattered across the land. They had lost everything. Now, just a a quick moment, history glimpse. I don't want to bore you or eyes glaze over, but it's important that we understand kind of what was going on with these Israelites for us to feel that in our own lives. And so just quick history timeline. 722 uh, BC, so this is before Jesus, 722, God's people have been idolatrous, they've been rebellious, they've been led astray, and the northern kingdom of the Israelites falls. So God's people start the exile then. Fast forward a little bit later, and 586 is kind of the the big deal. This is when the temple was destroyed. Okay, so the temple is a big deal to Israelites. This was their religious center. I mean, all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, all of, all of the worship festivals, everything was centered around this. And in 586, God's people lost that and were scattered out of Jerusalem. Okay, so here they are. They're scattered. They're, they're all abroad. 537, so 50 years later, 49 years later, they begin to come back to Jerusalem. Cyrus, King Cyrus, he gives this decree that God's, the Israelites can come back to the city. So there's this restored sense of joy. There's this restored sense of hope. And then in 515, finally, the temple is rebuilt, though not to its original glory. And so the question and the reason I give you that span of history is not just for information, um, but I give that to you because I want you to ask yourselves and to begin to feel what the experience of an exile was like. Like, what would exile have done to an Israelite? Well, it would have made them very uncertain about God's presence in their life. It would have produced a deep, deep deep-rooted doubt that God was there. So like God had made all these promises to his people, Jerusalem, the temple, all of these things, and they lost it. It was gone. 
They're scattered around. And so in them is this deep-seated doubt that God would accept them back. So if that's what they're feeling, and then God, apart from anything the Jews had done, they did nothing really to get restored back. God just placed them back into the promises. Sheer grace. What would that have felt like? Well, the text tells us it would have felt like a dream. You ever had a dream that that felt too good to be true? I mean, like, you know, maybe you're dreaming that you're extravagantly wealthy, (laughs) then you wake up and rent's due and you're broke as a joke. (laughs) Like one of those dreams, or maybe I've had this dream, maybe you, you wake up and you're like this ridiculously athletically built and kind of just chiseled guy, and you wake up and you still have dad bod. You know, like, like, it's like, I mean, honestly, like, these are the things that's like, yeah, that dream was too good to be true. That's what the Israelites would have felt, that having been brought out of exile back into the promises, it felt too good to be true. And so here's, here's where we connect for us. Um, that tension of exile is over. Um, and and it's, it was over for the Israelites, but it, but it is even leaps and bounds further over for the Christian today. See, the gospel of Jesus guarantees us that exile is over. And here's, here's how. And here's how God did it in really seismic type of ways by changing everything. The gospel guarantees exile is over by relocating God's presence inside of God's people. See, that was the big fear for the Israelites, was, was if, is if everything centered around the city and the temple and man-made things, there was always the danger that that would be lost. There was always that fear and trepidation that God's presence would leave God's people when the temple was destroyed. But see, what, what has happened in the gospel, in the arrival of Jesus, is that God no longer places his presence in a building made by men, but God now places his presence in a people made by God. And so no longer is the spirit in the temple, but God's spirit is now in his people. Now, here's here's a bit of the rub, is that we have a history. And we have a past. Everybody has a history. We, we've all got the quote-unquote baggage, right? The baggage of our past. And we, as people, tend to view our past as our great accuser. Like, how could, how could God be in a person like you? <laughs> I know where you've been. I know what you've done. I know what you've said. And I know what you've thought. There's no way that God would dwell in a person like you. But hear what, the, hear what the New Testament says about that. Colossians chapter 2, lots of Bible today. Um, we always use the Bible, but lots of Bible today. Colossians 2 says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses, in other words, you who had a messy past, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. So the past of God's people, the accusatory nature of our history has been canceled. It's been dealt with. 
And um, the reason you can know that your messy past will never catch up to you is because it's been nailed to the cross. Like God fully dealt with it. It's over. And so if that's true, if your past has been dealt with and it will never sneak up on you again, and God has promised by faith that he will live in you and absolutely nothing you do can ever change that. Nothing you do good, because you didn't earn it, and nothing you do bad, because you'll, you'll never unearn it. When that begins to swell up over you, like to wash over you, this reality that God's presence will never leave the believer, do you know what begins to bubble up in your life? Joy. Like that sense of confidence and assurance is what the Bible calls joy. It's not flickering and fleeting based on your condition or your circumstances or how life is going or feeling. It bubbles up because it's, it's the reality that exile is over. <laughs> Exile's over. Separation from God is, is done. But there's, there's a bigger and brighter future ahead for God's people. And so it's, it's not just building on the past and how God has dealt that and used that in your own scenarios, but it's also, it's also borrowing from the future, so looking ahead. So let's, let's look at verses 4 to 6, um, borrowing from the future. Uh, we've learned a lot through this um, nine months of pregnancy. It's come up a lot in my sermons because... God is teaching me a great deal through this whole experience, and, and I know it's not even really my experience. I'm not, 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 not begging for sympathy on that level, but, uh, but through it all, um, the Lord is, one of the things he's been teaching me is kind of, it's what we call, if you've been around the church, you've heard this terminology of the already and the not yet. Um, so the already and the not yet is, is really this tension that we have between the things that we know to already be true of us in Christ and then the not yet of the fullness and the consummation and the end of it. And so, you know, the illustration connected to pregnancy is like, I already know the love that I have for this little girl. Like, she's already got me, you know, wrapped up. Like, I'm already loving pink everywhere, and I am, I am already in this game. I am, I'm all out for this little girl, and I haven't even met her yet. And so it's like, it's, I haven't even got a, 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 really a glimpse of that not yet. Like, I haven't even held her yet. Felt her kick, but haven't held her. And so this great tension between the already and the not yet is really the, the great tension that, that the song begins to kind of elaborate on for us is we know exile's over and we know salvation is won and restored and all of these things, but there's still some not yet that they're dealing with. And the not yets are, are given to us in two metaphors. The first metaphor is a stream running through a drought-stricken land. Okay, so verse 4. So verse 4 is, uh, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now the Negev is, is, is desert dry land. Now listen, we're in the desert, we're in New Mexico, we kind of get this, but we're, we're, most of us are kind of city. And so if you don't know about dryness and dirt, go to Tito's house. If you haven't been to Tito's house, Tito's on... He's basically in Gallup. I thought I was west, but he's west, west Rio Rancho. 
And his backyard is, is you know, it's dirt. It's the mesa. It's, it's all of that. And so, like, I don't know. I love Tito's house. It's beautiful. Marili's on here. I, I probably won't use that in second service. But, um, but you look out back, or you look beyond his neighborhood, which there's not much to it, and it's dryness. It's dirt. And, and so we kind of get this. And, and the negative, here's, here's the thing with the way water hits dry land. Like, if a sudden crashing you know, storm of rain hits dry land, it actually hardens it more. It actually makes the soil more difficult to absorb. And so it kind of cracks it. But the promise of the song is not that rain would hit the land, but that streams would hit the land. And so what the psalmist is addressing is dryness and the promise that streams are going to work through that dryness. Not just a sudden crashing experience of rain, but constant flowing streams that will provide moisture to dryness. And so, you know, it, it's dealing with, with really spiritual dryness. That's the metaphor. When the Lord feels distant, you know, when, when your prayers feel like they're just hitting the ceiling, like, like, like you're talking to yourself. I'm, I know I'm not the only one that's felt that. Right? Like nothing is gaining traction spiritually for you. And, and really you're at a point where you're, you're dry. And, and so he begins to show us that yes, the Lord, we know thee already. The Lord is in me. Right? His, his spirit is dwelling in me. Um, but the not yet is we're not with him fully. And so we go through these seasons of dryness. The second metaphor that he uses is planting seeds out in a barren land, verse 5, and he relates it to tears. Those who sow, that's planting seeds, in tears shall reap the harvest with shouts of joy. What I love about this is that the laughter and joy of verse 2 that fills our mouth does not exclude the pain and sadness of verse 5. And so what this song begins to show us is that joy, true biblically oriented joy, is not just happy clappy. It's not just when things are well. It actually includes our sadness. Like sadness, like, like real sad, real tears. Like when your pillow just, it's wet all the time for whatever reason. You're sad because you're single. And the Lord just, just hasn't brought that person into your life. Or, or maybe you're sad because you're married. And you're, you're in this difficult marriage. And so you're sad. Or you're sad about brokenness that you're seeing in your own life or in the larger world. And there's just this, just this grayness. And there's this sadness that just won't lift. And so what he begins to show is, is the already, yes, I know I'm supposed to be happy in Jesus. I know I'm supposed to be rejoicing in the God of my salvation, but, but I'm sad. And the psalmist is okay with us being there. Joy doesn't exclude sadness, but what it shows us is the not yet that your sadness will be turned to joy. The promise of the song is that those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. 
Let me connect this to our own lives. Um, how the way that we deal with both dryness in our lives and sadness in our lives really believes, really reveals what we believe about the future. So the way the way that we typically and un, in unhealthy ways deal with sadness and dryness, one of the ways is by numbing the pain. And so, you know, we entertain ourselves, you know, ad nauseum. It's entertainment all the time. I've got to be, you know, sports guru of all things. I've got to know every stat. I've got to know every game. It's a way of bringing life into the dryness of your life. Or, or you know, we numb, we numb, we numb through substances. We, we, you know, you know a, a beer and a glass of wine with dinner turns into four, five, six because... You're sad about your life, and though it doesn't feel abusive or over, you know, overdone, um, it's it's numbing things in your life. Um, or, or maybe we just we just fake it. We fake happiness. It's kind of the the fake it until you make it mentality. Like I'm just gonna put a smile on. I'm just gonna avoid all of that. Um, or you know, we buy. We try to buy happiness, even though we know it doesn't. We just try to put stuff in there and activities in there and vacations in there. And, and we're, we're just numbing and numbing the sadness and the dryness. Or, or maybe yours is a little bit you know, less material and physical. Maybe yours is a little more relational. Another way that we deal with dryness and sadness is we eliminate risks in our relationships. We avoid going beyond the surface with people. We avoid allowing people into the sadness and dryness of our lives um, because vulnerability is really risky. You risk rejection. You have fear of people getting in there and really knowing what you're like. And so you just avoid it. And you're always at an arm's distance. And you'll never let anybody in there. But how, how should we deal with dryness and sadness? Well, what this song is showing us is that we should borrow hope from the future. And we should lean into those promises right now. And so, you know, we, we believe that streams are going to flow over the dryness and we believe that the, so, the tears aren't without purpose. And so, you know, the, the result of all of this, verse 6, is that, that the believer will come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves, those are a bundle of, you know, produce or something of worth with him. And so, you know, all of that sounds, might, might sound all right, um, but the question is, what is this song commanding us to do? And, and how can we respond in a very practical way to what it's commanding us to do? Here's, here's what I think that the song is commanding us to do. is to stop looking for joy everywhere else. Like to stop fixing your eyes on things that will never, never satisfy you. Good things, but not ultimate things. And it's telling us to fix our eyes on the one place, actually the one person 
where true, lasting joy is offered. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us where that source is. It says, looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what was the joy that was ahead of Jesus? Was it his death? No, (laughs) certainly not. But it wasn't even just the delight of him being restored, even though he didn't know that fully as a man. The joy that was before him was your joy. (laughs) The joy that was before him was that what he knew would be accomplished for people like us. That's the joy that he pursued to the end. And it's a joy that is everlasting, fully and finally satisfying and can never be taken away from anybody who would trust in the Lord. And so here's a challenge. I would even, I'll make a challenge to you. If you could find any other joy that is greater and fuller than that good news of what Jesus has done for me, I will stop being a Christian. I'll stop being a Christian if you can find me a fuller source of joy. And I don't think God is offended by that statement, and here's why. I think God is actually amused by that statement because he knows that we were made to find joy in him, and only in him will we ever be fully satisfied. You can look, you can search, you can dig, you can try to discover all of the various ways, but nothing will ever satisfy you like the good news that God is with you and God is in you. So, Will you come and taste of that kind of joy today? Have you come to a point in your life where where really joy has escaped you? Like you've had these moments of happiness, these seasons of gladness, but they come and they go, they ebb and they flow, they're in and they're out. Would you finally stop looking everywhere else and come to the real source and taste of this kind of joy. Let's pray and ask that God would do that even in us, even today. Let's pray. Father, we we are not always happy and joyful in you, Lord. Um, Lord, we look in all the wrong places for it. We search and we don't find. We taste and it never satisfies. And so, Lord, we come once again asking you to help us to see Jesus and all that he offers his people and that we would come not by some religious effort or some spiritual activity that we do, but that we would simply come by faith and that you would give us just a taste, even just a taste of that future joy that is ours. Lord, would you do that even now? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. (music)